So have you ever looked at a passage in the Bible and thought, man, I wonder how he's going to get out of this one? (laughs) This is the third time I'm preaching it and I'm still saying, I wonder how I'm going to get out of this one. I have a good friend who I'm on a team or searching for a position and um, he spent his life um, really kind of ending it actually as the head of HR in this one company, huge company, multi, multi-million dollar company. As we were doing some work on this team, somebody make a statement and my friend said, can I put my HR hat on? Uh, what you just said is illegal. It wasn't me, praise God. <laughs> We, we live in a world, as I'm glad, where sexual bias is a crime. We live in a world where we're not getting there fully, but we are believing, I think, culturally that um, whatever your gender is, if you do the same job, you ought to get the same pay. We live in a world where sexual harassment, either way, is an offense, as it should be. And we live in a world that is increasingly talking of equity. We debate as to whether or not it's an equity of outcome versus an equity of opportunity. But, but we're raising, I think, in some ways, some important issues. The problem is, as we raise those and as we address those, I think, biblically speaking, we may come to a passage like this and think, good night, this is the most sexist thing in the world. I mean, women, you have to wear a head covering. And guys, if you wear a head covering, you're in trouble. And this whole headship thing, I mean, there's some that's just like, there's no way. And in fact, there's some who would argue there's no headship in the Trinity. There's no hierarchy in the Trinity at all. And so they look at this passage and they think to themselves, this has got to be culturally driven. And we need to set it on the shelf. Uh, this is not for today. We're beyond this, so they say. So there's a lot of things we do with a text like this. Number one is we can just ignore it because we don't understand it. I mean, there's a lot here we don't understand. What does it mean to be head? And, and what does it mean to have authority over? And why do we have to have head coverings? And what's the whole thing about long hair? And if a guy has long hair, does that mean he's not just a hippie? He's actually a rebellious man against God? And what on earth is going on with the angels? What are they watching? And why does a woman have to dress in a certain way and prophesy in a certain way so that the angels are happy? Don't they have enough to deal with in terms of being messengers? That they're watching our worship and they're getting all shook up about it? I mean, honestly, I'm not sure if there's a passage in the Bible that has more what we call interpretive landmines than this one. So one is just to say, I don't understand it. Church history has never understood it. Tons of people have all kinds of different views. That's our way of saying, I don't want to deal with it. Another one is to just simply write it off as culturally bound, meaning that what Paul was addressing was a cultural issue in Corinth, not a timeless principle. And so therefore, we're not wrestling with that issue. It doesn't apply to us. Or some honestly take this thing And become dictators in their own home, telling their wives that they are the head of them and therefore their word goes. I hope to dismiss all of those. As we wrestle through this passage, 
But I will tell you, there's a lot of challenges. And I'm going to ask you to kind of put on your, your A game today. And I know you're maybe hungry and you're ready to go for some football this afternoon. But suspend that. And stay with me. But you're going to have to think hard. Because there's some real difficult aspects of this text. Number one that makes this thing challenging, I think, is simply word meanings. What do these words mean? What does it mean that Christ is the head of man and man is the head of uh, wife and the and God is the head of Christ? I mean, why are we mixing the Trinity in with marriage? And, and where does this actually reside? Is this, when you walk out of here, ladies, are you to be uh, submitted to all men? Or is it just your husband? How does it relate to the church? Word meanings are difficult. And, and, and not just word meanings, but, you know, as I said earlier, this whole issue, it's, it's not a word necessarily, but it's a phrase. He, he says in verse 10, for this reason and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority over her head. Uh, again, what, what are the angels watching us for? And why are they bothered? What's their concern? Another thing that makes this one difficult is determining the difference between what I call contextual application versus eternal principle. Whenever you're interpreting the Bible, you have some challenges to make. Jeremiah says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to not harm you, but to prosper you. There's a whole lot of people who say, man, that that God gave me that verse. Well, he didn't. God bless you. He gave it to the nation of Israel and to Jeremiah. Is there a principle that you take out of that? Second Chronicles says, if my people are called by my name, will humble themselves. Who's writing that to? United States, Greece, or Israel? Well, certainly not the U.S. Is there a timeless principle that we take out of there? Yeah, but we have to be careful that we don't move it directly to the nation of, or to the United States versus what is that timeless principle that we can take out of it and extrapolate that principle? That's one of the interpretive challenges that we have. Well, in this one, we have to wrestle with, is this a timeless principle or is there cultural issues here? Does long hair today mean what it did there years ago? It'd be like asking, is is modesty the same in the United States as it is in Africa or as it is in Asia? Or does modesty have the same thing to do today as it did 200 years ago? Do we have any context that kind of affects the way we interpret this and apply that or is all of this a timeless principle of which look around the room if there's a lady with short hair it means that she's advertising as a prostitute don't look around that would be weird (laughs) and if any guy comes into the service and he has a hat like one did in a previous service and we got into the middle of the message and I noticed he's like, woohoo, got to get that thing off. <laughs> Whoops, <laughs> wore my hat to the wrong service. <laughs> what do we do with these? To what degree and how do we apply them? And then lastly, determining the influence of context. Um, there's a phrase that people use today, I hate you. 
<laughs> it sounds kind of like somebody hates somebody else. Well, it may not be. I mean, it depends on the context, does it not? It might be somebody saying, I hate you. It's two friends who something came between them and one is telling them, I no longer want a relationship with you. However, I've also heard it say, when somebody has a wonderful opportunity and you're slightly jealous of them, you say, I hate you. It's not really that you hate them. It's kind of a weird way of saying that I'm envious of you. Like get out of the house. That might be a wife telling a husband, I'm done with you. Or it might be a mother to her children. I want you to live. The house is on fire. You see, context shapes everything. Context is going to determine our words. Now, what's the context? Paul's been talking about freedom, has he not? And restricting our freedom for the sake of the body of Christ. He's actually, at the end of this chapter, we're going to get there in two weeks. In the end of this chapter, he's um, talking about communion. And he's talking about the effect of communion. Where is it? It's in the context of the church. It's not at your home. Where does chapter 11, 2 through 16 reside? What effect does it have? What's the context? Is he still talking about restrictive freedom? That's a different issue. And that it shapes us. We're going to do our best as we go through to touch the base on each of these. But that's why I need you to just engage. This is one of those sermons where, man, if you come in halfway and you, you kind of let your mind wander, you're going to hear something like, whoo, that sounds crazy. It is. But let's dig in. What's God trying to teach us? Now, I want you to realize, he says, that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Paul lays down, from my perspective, his principle right there. Don't have to read any farther. He says, let me start off. Here's the foundation of what I want to talk to you about. There is a relationship between the triune God in heaven and marriage and the church. He just moves it sequentially. What I see up here in heaven, I want to see here on earth. How the son relates to the father is how I want men and women to relate to the son and to God. And how I want women to relate to their husbands. You might summarize it this way. If you want to have a good marriage, make it look like God. If you want to have a good church, if you want to have a church that's healthy and vibrant, make sure it reflects the very nature of the template that it was built upon, and that is God. So Paul lays down this principle, and let me give it to you in these words. As there is order in the Trinity, because that's what he's going to talk about, Christ has a head over him. It's God the Father. And as there is order in the Trinity, so Paul says... There should be order in the home and the church. Why do I restrict it to the home and to the church? Because that's the nature of the relationships that he's talking about. He's talking about a wife to her husband. And he's talking about that man to God. And he's moving in chapter 11. And from chapter 11 to chapter 14, Paul is addressing the leadership of the church, how it's led, 
how it worships, how it takes communion, how it loves, all of that is in the church. So that's the parameters. It's not out on the street. It's not when you go to work at Macy's. It's not when you go to Salem Kaiser. It's not over at the hospital. Ladies, you don't have to walk over to the hospital and tell your boss, I have to submit to you as Christ submits to God. Uh, I recommend, you know, doing what they say. But this text is not over at the hospital. Unless you work for your husband. There's order. What kind of order? Well, the text simply says, the head of Christ is God. So we have to wrestle, first of all, what what does head mean? There's three options that are typically used. Number one would be origin, as God is the origin of Christ. The problem with that one is simply, uh, God is not the origin. He's not the creator of Christ. Why? Because Christ is eternal. He has been in existence with God, the Father, from the very beginning of it doesn't have one. They've always existed together. So there's no way we can use in terms of origination, meaning that as man is the origin of the woman, that they took the rib out and and therefore she finds her origin from man. That doesn't make sense because Christ never found his origin from the father. Another term that's probably most popular today is source, the idea that it one flows out of the other. The problem with that one is if you know your heresies, the Arian heresy kind of was that, that that's modalism, that Christ flows out of, Christ is not eternal. And he finds his source from the father and the woman finds her source from the man. Maybe the uh, number one is, is is kind of leads us down a heretical position to take that uh, definition, but maybe another argument against that is is of the twenty three hundred times that this word uh, kefle is used in the New Testament and or just in Greek literature twenty three hundred times it's never translated source. So to take a word that's never been used in any context and kind of load it up, I think the motive of that is is they want to rid themselves of a troubling matter, and that is they don't want to say out loud, women, submit to your husbands. They don't want to have to say that. Because for whatever reason, we have allowed ourselves to think that submission somehow deals with the issue of value and purpose and meaning. In essence, Christ chooses to submit to the Father. Paul says it this way, and the head of Christ is God. Where do we see this? We see it all over the New Testament. We see that the scripture says that God the Father sent the Son. We see that Christ comes and says, I've only come to speak that which the Father has given to me. We see it most notably in the garden when Christ is praying all night with the father and he says to the father, is there any other way we can save people? I don't mind saving people. I just don't want to go to the cross. And maybe worse than the cross is the fact that Christ had to drink the cup of wrath and take upon him in a single moment all of the sins of the world. Have you ever just had a moment where you're just kind of broken over your sin and you're just mindful of like, wow. Have you ever been in a place like in the middle of a riot in Portland and think to yourself, God, this world is so broken. 
And you've just been maybe overwhelmed by it. I was one time when I was in an orphanage in Mozambique. I was just emotionally undone by the third orphanage that we went to watching women hold their AIDS babies, knowing and wondering who's going to die first. If in a single moment I am overwhelmed by the reality of sin in this world, imagine what Christ faced that night when the entirety of sin was going to be imputed to him. And what did Jesus say? Father, I don't want to go to the cross. I want nothing to do with the cross. But not my will, yours. I will submit to you. I'll go. I not only see the submission of Christ, but I see the elevation of Christ by the Father. They're on the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus is up there and God the Father shows up and Moses is there and Elijah's there and Peter's there and Peter wants to build a temple and he's like, hey, let's just stay here. This is a beautiful place. And you remember what the Father says? I don't know if he shouted it, he whispered it, just spoke it, but he said, gentlemen, this is my son. Listen to him. I often think, dads, you would be so far ahead of the game if you would just simply say to your kids, pipe it, your mom is about to speak and what she's going to say is glorious. Listen to her. She's wise. She'll save your life. You see, in the Trinity, you see this beautiful relationship of back and forth, the the father esteeming the son. The scripture says that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Go back and look at that in Philippians 2. Who makes that happen? It's the father. It's the father who says, I will see to it that everyone recognizes the lordship of my son. And then in 1 Corinthians, it says that the son is going to come and he's going to put everything under the footstool of his father. This glorious, beautiful relationship. And here's Paul's principle. When you look at God and you see how he relates and you see how the son comes under him and submits to him for the glory of God and the benefit of your salvation, that is a picture to every married couple. That's what you should look like. And to every church, that's how you should operate. Christ submits to the Father, and then Paul says, Christ is the head of every man. It means, gentlemen, you are not the king of your castle. You may think that garage is yours, and your wife has given you permission. Uh Uh-uh, it's Jesus. Jesus is the one who says, I am the owner. You are the foreman. Some of you are managers, and some of you are owners, and you know the difference. Owners set the tone. Owners establish the value. Owners determine the net end. Managers work from owner's orders. And by the way, if you're a manager, if you're a foreman, and you disregard the owner, you won't do it very long. You'll be fired. Why? Because owners don't take kindly to managers who disregard them. And they shouldn't. 
When Paul says Christ, men, is your head, it means that you're not the boss of your home. It means that you lead by his permission. It means that you lead with a submitted heart to Christ. It means that you have a calling not to be the boss over them or to lord it over your family. But it means you live with a privileged permission and responsibility to honor the desires of the one who is your head. In Ephesians, it talks about Christ and it says that he is the head of the church. It means that whether they be elders, trustees, deacons, don't matter what you call yourselves, they are under shepherds to the intention of the father. They are under shepherds to the leadership of Christ. And it should be their greatest passion. It should be their absolute greatest passion to make sure that the way they lead is in alignment with the values of Christ. I believe every leader, every pastor is gonna stand before Christ. And yes, we will stand before Christ about our belief. What allows me to enter into the presence of heaven? It's the grace of God. But when I get there, I believe, both, especially those who are teachers, but those who are leaders, you're gonna stand before Christ and he's gonna ask you, how did you lead my church? How did you lead my sheep? And did you lead them in alignment with my values and my heart? And then you have to wrestle with that in your home. I know many a guy who has told me over the years, oh, my wife is way more, you know, spiritually mature than I am. And and my wife knows so much more spiritually than I do. I'm glad she does. But quit using that as a cop out. You're assigned by God to be the spiritual director and head of your home under Christ. You will stand before Christ, my friend, with me, and he will ask you, did you honor me as your head? Paul says, what we see in heaven, we need to see here on earth. And as Christ came under the authority of God the Father. So men, we need to come under the authority of Christ and it leads to the next one, which is man is the head of woman. Now I understand this won't play real well out in the world. I get that. I just think it's a tragedy because when you understand what you're really saying, if you disregard this is you're saying, God, I don't like your design. And I think actually you're kind of suspect in your wisdom. But wives, if you want to know what submission looks like, watch Jesus in relationship to the father. That's your picture because that's what Paul builds it upon. As there is order in the Trinity, So there should be order in your home and there should be order in your church. It means, yes, we're a team, but it recognizes in this text that men were created first and then woman as a helpmate. Why can't I dismiss this as cultural? For two reasons. Number one, 
is the argument that Paul builds is number one, a redemptive argument. It is the redemptive argument of the relationship of Christ to the Father and how they work together to redeem us. That's our picture. That's not time bound. That is timeless. And secondly, verses seven through nine, Paul goes to another place to give us, if you will, an argument for why what happens in heaven needs to be replicated here on earth. As we see submission of Christ to the father, so we need to see submission of husband to Christ and wife to husband. Why? In in verse seven, pick it up there with me. He says, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Where's he at right now? He's in creation. He's not in Corinth. He's not trying to give you a problem he sees in Corinth. He's taking us back to the redemptive nature and model of Christ to the Father and also to what? To creation. What he's suggesting is the principle that I'm giving you is one that was founded in the very beginning. God said, let us make man in our image, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And in the image of God, he created them male and female. And though they have equal value, and though they have equal worth, they don't have equal responsibilities. They don't have equal functions, just like the Trinity. It was God the Son who died on the cross, not the Holy Spirit. It was God the Father who sent them, not the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that seals you and dwells you, not God the Son. It is God the Son who will come back on his horse and the trumpet will be blown and the Father will be there with him cheering him and it will be Christ who comes back and sets up the throne in Jerusalem. It's not God the Holy Spirit. Is God the Holy Spirit involved? Yes. God the Holy Spirit is convicting the world as we speak. It's God the Holy Spirit who's moving around the world convicting us. That's his role. That's his function. It doesn't mean he's less than or greater than. They're absolutely equal. But there is distinction. Not in value. Not in worth. But in function. And by the way, responsibility. To my knowledge, God the Father knows when he's going to send the Son, and I hope it's soon. But the Son doesn't know. Oh, that seems so strange to us. How can one being have separate conscience? Well, the way I look at it is if you could perfectly explain God, you would be. But you and I aren't. So don't be surprised that you can't fully hold together who God really is. What does it mean when a woman comes under her husband? It means that she recognizes that she's entering into not a demand of her husband, but the design of her God. She should not expect her husband to be perfect. He won't be just like she isn't. But she should recognize that God has called him to fulfill a responsibility. It's not easy. 
And there will be days that he flails away at it. But it is her responsibility to recognize his position, his authority, and his calling before God. It is the husband's responsibility to come under Christ and to be a representative of God in their home and to lead in a way that looks just like the way the father leads the son. And just like the way the son leads you. Christ never coerces you. He woos you and he loves you and he serves you and he dies for you. And as best as I can see in 38 years of being a pastor, when a husband lives that way, I have yet to find a woman. I have yet to find a woman that has any problem with submission. When a woman understands that her husband will die for her, will protect her, esteems her, sets the temperature of the home. I have yet to find a woman who says, I'm not submitting to that. My wife and I, we've been married about 38 years. Not about, we have been. (laughs) We've made a lot of decisions in those years. We changed vocations. We've changed locations. We've dealt with children, tragedy. And I can tell you, you can correct me if I'm wrong and go to talk to my wife. We've never had a split decision. I've never used my position as a man to say, you're going to do what I say. Why? For two reasons. I'm not that smart. And guys, can I speak for you? You aren't either. Here's the deal. Why would I go through this life and dismiss her wisdom? Why would I go through life and miss the opportunity of letting the Holy Spirit bring us to the same page? Let me tell you, one, that we were flat out not on the same page. I wanted two children. She wanted more. I had two kids. Done. I was kind of an economist. I think I can handle two kids. One hand goes with you. One hand goes with me. We add three. We're split. We're in trouble. I think she said something like this. I'm the one who gives birth, you sissy. I want three. (laughs) Pray about it. I can't imagine our life without Jacob and Annie. I can't. It would be the most absurd thing. It was her wisdom. It was her faith. We have traveled together and faced some beautiful times and some really hard times. So for a man to be ahead does not mean I get the buck stops here, final say, you got to do what I say. Any more than I see the father telling the son that. But what it does mean is that men, you're going to have to set a course What are the values? How do you make decisions? How do you respect? How do you esteem your spouse? How do you lift her up? How do you grow from her? How do you practice Ephesians 5.21, which calls you to mutual submission? 
See, the head position is not one of privilege. It's actually one of responsibility. Just like Christ, who took his position and died so that you could have life. As there is order in the Trinity, so Paul says, the scripture says, so there is order in the home and the church. Now let's close with this issue of head covering. Because it's all over this text. My position on this is simply this. There is a timeless principle. And Paul wants them to understand the temptation for some of you is to use your freedom in ways that's beyond the intention of God. Here's the principle. As there is order in the Trinity, there needs to be order in the home. Now, how you live that out, this is my perspective, is at times going to be culturally determined. The principle, timeless. The application, or maybe the way you manifest it. If you were to walk downtown in Corinth, you could tell who the prostitutes are. You don't have to ask them. You don't even have to ask if they're working. You know who they are. There are two signs. One, the women's hair is very short and possibly or maybe even likely shaved. What Paul is saying to them is, is, ladies, when you come to church, understand where you live. You live in Corinth. And if you come into church with your hair cut short and you stand up and prophesy, what you're really doing to the entire congregation is telling them, I'm available. I know my husband is right there, but I'm available sexually. Paul says, no, that's dishonoring. And men, when you stand up and you prophesy, when you lead, when you pray, kind of nature, you can't go back and say all of nature. Why? Because the Levite vows and a score of others, the vast majority of men in the Old Testament era would probably have had longer hair. So what Paul is saying is that all those men back there, David, you know, and and all of those guys like Abraham who probably had longer hair, they were all men living dishonorably before God. No, culture changes. What is modesty today is not modesty in the United States 200 years ago. 200 years ago, if you wore nylons, ladies, you were a prostitute. Today, no. It's not the same. Hair length today doesn't have the messaging that it did in Corinth. If you have short hair, nobody says, oh, you work the streets. Why? We don't even go there. Why? Because we haven't made that connection. Paul says there's a principle. And what you have the responsibility of doing is making sure that the way you live images and manifests that principle. A a sub-application of this is never blur the lines between what it means to be a man and a woman in any given context. Don't blur those lines. Guys, you dresses, and we're going to meet you at the front door. Don't call them kilts. I know you think that's cool. It's a dress. 
they dressed. Guys wore things that looked like dresses. Today, what it looks like to be a man is you don't wear a dress. We know that culturally. Don't blur those lines, he says. Why? Because your responsibility as a husband and wife is to mirror the very image of God that created and he made you male and female. There's a distinction and we shouldn't do everything we can to blur that. And when you pray, and women, you should be praying in church. The person who says that women shouldn't speak in church, uh, the women shouldn't lead in church, is not reading their Bible. They're just not. They're bound by some cultural thing, but they're not reading the text of scripture because Paul doesn't say, women, you shouldn't be up here. We had a number of years ago, somebody leave our church because we had, uh, I won't name who it is, a lady pray. And they said, oh, pastor, you're heading down a path of liberalism. Like, why? Well, because you have women on the stage. Took him to this passage. Where in this passage does Paul say, women, thou shalt not pray and prophesy in the church? It just simply says, do what? Do it in a way that honors your husband. Do it in a way that shows your submission to God. Now, you're going to see some denominations and some ladies even in our church, not a lot, that they'll, they'll be wearing longer hair as a way of applying this text or maybe even a covering. I, I don't dishonor that. I don't even disagree with it. Why? Because they're simply saying, I want to manifest in a way what is in my heart. Now, let me use my wife for a moment and I'll pay for it later. I do not know of a woman who's more submitted to her husband than my wife. I don't. And if you haven't noticed, her hair is not long and she doesn't have a head covering. What I do know is what's in her heart. I've experienced it. When I was a teacher and we felt God was leading me to go into the ministry and people pleaded with her, don't let your husband be a pastor, dumbest thing he could ever do. You're going to be living in a fishbowl the rest of your life and people are going to be shooting at your husband and it's going to be horrible. Don't let your husband do this. And when God led us, she said, let's go. When we moved into the inner city and we had a knifing and a shooting every week and we were raising our kids there. And I remember one time her dad came and he said, I want to take my daughter home. And I was kind of looking at her going, what would you choose? And she made no bones about saying, this is where my heart is. If God has called us to the inner city, to knifings and shootings, then he'll protect us in this place. When we moved from one church to another, her best friends were there. Her life was there. She loved the place. And God was calling us to another place. And it was just, it was like, man, if you've ever seen a tree deeply planted and you just see the roots getting ripped out of the ground, that was her soul. And when we moved, I asked her one time, I said, do you regret moving? She goes, never. It hurts. But if God calls you, I'm with you. I have never met a woman Can you live this principle without having long hair, ladies? Yes, you can. Can you live it without having a covering on your head? Yes, you can. Men, can you grow your hair longer and still prophesy in church? Yes, you can. But here's the question. Not do you have a head covering. 
Not is your hair the right length, but is your heart in the right place? Ladies, do you see the privilege of submitting to your husband and coming under his strength and his leadership as a design that God has given to you for your benefit? Or do you fight it because you think God's design is archaic? Men, are you willing to honor Christ by living under him and not using your wife's brilliance and even spiritual maturity as an excuse to step back and abdicate all things over to her? Are you willing to step forward and say, Christ, lead me. I don't feel equipped to do this. I don't feel smart enough at times to do this. But if you've assigned me this, I will not shrink back from your assignment. I'm not too interested in your hair length. I am very interested in the courage of your heart. Now about angels. What on earth? God, what what are these ladies called to do this because of the angels? Well, there's not a lot of agreement on this, to be quite honest with you. And so that's kind of a passage you can have fun with, right? (laughs) Let me give you my best shot. What have the angels at times seen in heaven? What's, what's the palate of their mouth remember? There was a day that the most beautiful angel, majestic, shining star, would not submit his beauty to the Father, but exploited it. Didn't like the design of heaven. And rather than coming under the authority of the father, he rebelled. And he led one third of the angelic beings out because his beauty went to his head and his majesty went and poisoned his heart. And the angels, it seems to me, maybe are slightly skeptical. Because it also says in Ephesians chapter 3 that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God is being revealed to the heavenly realms and to the principalities and the heirs. In other words, God is putting the church on display for the angels and for the demons. Why would he do that? Maybe they're in heaven going, can it really work? Can Jew and Gentile really come together? Can beauty really submit to strength and bring harmony And purpose. Ladies. God says that when you live in submission to your husband. You're putting the angels at ease. You're communicating to them. Beauty doesn't have to be exploitive. It doesn't have to be manipulative. I can take that which God has given to me. Submitted to his design for his glory and for his purposes. And it can bring about the redemptive plan of God. By the way, when your neighbors watch your marriage and men, they see you lead with a tender and a servant heart and ladies with a submitted heart. The scripture is best I understand it. You put God on display and it may be the very thing your marriage that draws that person to say yes to Jesus. 
Just like when they look at the church and they see it not bickering, but coming together, working together, submitting to each other, bearing with each other. The angelic beings, Ephesians 3, and the demonic beings look and say, Oh God, how glorious you are.